For those who uh, follow such things, and I, I try to be aware, although I don't uh, follow it that closely most years, but some of you are aware that we're in the Feast of Tabernacles right now. And obviously, as New Covenant believers, we're not required to keep the feasts or anything like that, but there is profound revelation in some of the feasts of Israel. And uh, I pay attention during those seasons because sometimes the Lord is speaking about a specific thing. And we're in the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a feast that we will celebrate into all of eternity, is what Zechariah 14 tells us, that we will always celebrate tabernacles uh, to celebrate God dwelling in our midst forever. You know, Jesus tabernacled among us. That's what John said whenever it says that uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word there in Greek is a word that means he pitched his tent among us. And how many of you know for all of eternity, we're going to be dwelling with God manifest? Won't that be amazing? You know, from the beginning, the Lord's dream has been that he would have a place he could dwell with his people. That's what Eden was about. You know, he had a place where he could walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. That's what uh, the covenants that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was about. That's what the uh, tabernacle in the wilderness was about. That's what the temple was about. It's what Jerusalem was about. It was about God looking for a place that he could dwell with his people. And that's the dream in his heart still. It's what our intimate life of communion and fellowship with the Lord is all about. He wants to dwell with us. He wants to dwell with his people. And I think that our ultimate calling, whenever we have arrived, we'll know it because we will be continually dwelling with the Lord. He'll get what he wants in our lives in that he'll have a dwelling place in us. You know, we are the temple. Obviously, we don't have to go to a building or a tent to meet with God anymore because we are the tabernacle. We are the temple because, of course, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. But I pay attention to uh, the feasts some years more than others. But, um, you know, tabernacles, one of the reasons that they celebrated also was to remember that the people of God are dwellers in tents is what the Lord told uh, Israel whenever he told them to commemorate it. He says, this is to commemorate that you are dwellers in tents. And why is that significant? You know, I've been camping a lot with my uh, boys over the last few months, and I used to celebrate camping a lot more whenever I was 18, because whenever I slept on the ground, I could move whenever I woke up in the morning. But uh, lately, though, whenever I camp, it's a whole nother story. But I don't think it's really about camping as much as it's about the fact that Israel were dwellers in tents because they were followers of the cloud. You know, they had to be ready to up and move whenever the Lord was moving. They had to be tuned in to what God was doing. And if the cloud was on the move, then they better be on the move or they're not going to be close to the Lord anymore. And so really, it's, it's a time to celebrate and to remember our calling to be prophetic people. We're to be people of the cloud, you know, people who are aware of what the Lord's doing and we're sensitive and we're following after him. Whenever the Lord up and moves, we better be up and moving with him because, I mean, I've been uh, around, you know, Morningstar churches long enough to know that regardless of which of the cities, hungry people come to churches like this people who are hungry and thirsty for his presence. We want to be near him. We want to hear his voice. We want to know him intimately and personally. So 
Uh, so we're a prophetic people, and so I just kind of take note of that. Uh, it was also a time whenever they celebrated the Exodus. They remembered that God brought them out of Egypt. So it's really a celebration of deliverance. How many of you are thankful that you're not still in captivity like you were once? Yeah, we celebrate that. It's a time to rejoice over that. Um, and as prophetic people, we're probably aware more than most of the gravity of what's happening in the earth right now. You know, if, we're, if we hear the voice of God and we're aware of the schemes of the enemy and the plan of God, I mean, how many of you know the Lord's coming to take over the earth, right? Ultimately, he's gonna return again. He's gonna set up a throne. He's gonna reign forever and fill all creation with the glory of God. That's where this thing is headed. But in the meantime, there is a desire of Satan himself and all the devils in hell to occupy this planet and to set up his own throne and to fill the earth with chaos and all kinds of demonic agenda and everything else. And so as, as prophetic people, again, people who are sensitive to the voice of the Lord and aware of what's happening in the invisible world, we're probably more aware of the weightiness of what's happening in the nations. And, uh, I, you know, I know I am. I can't, I can't separate my eschatology from watching the news. You know, I just, I can't, you can't unread the Bible, you know, once you sort of understand the context of the end of the age, which is great glory and great darkness. It's the great and terrible day of the Lord. You know, it's, uh, Daniel said there's a time in the earth called uh, when iniquity will reach its fullness and then we know that Acts and Joel prophesy that God will pour out his spirit on all flesh and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved and there will be signs in the earth or signs in the heavens, wonders in the earth. You know, it's just, it's, we're in for remarkable days. There's no way around it. Uh, but I think that we do well in, in these days uh, to have that heavenly perspective that Josh was leading us into singing about during worship. Uh, we went to the beach yesterday. Uh, Travis and the family took us to the beach. And as soon as we got out there, you know, I probably only come to the beach once or twice a year. And uh, so I'm always just mesmerized by just the beauty of it. And there was kind of some really low clouds. It, it just felt like the heavens were really low. I don't know how to describe it. But um, whenever we walked out there, though, I kept, uh, I was just walking along and it was like my gaze was just continually drawn to the ground like my kids were looking for seashells and they gave me a couple different seashells and then I would look out at the water. But every time I would look at the sky and look out at the horizon, it was very inspiring. You know what I mean? Like there's a wow factor whenever you stand at the beach. I hope you all aren't, uh, you know, aren't numb to it living here. You know, I hope you know what you got at the beach. I mean, there's something beautiful and amazing that's supposed to inspire awe and wonder in us whenever we stand at the beach. And as, uh, but I just kept, like, part of it was I was watching my kids and everything, but I kept almost forgetting, like, man, you need to look up. Like, let's keep our eyes on the heavens because everything is attracting our attention to the earth right now. But if we'll look up, it's much more inspiring. You know, Paul said, uh, Colossians 3, 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. It's really interesting that he says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. So somehow Paul thinks about humanity in like the age to come terminology. You know what I'm talking about. He's saying, if you've been raised with Christ, well, I mean, I know I have, but I'm also still kind of walking around in this physical world all the time. Or Paul would say things like to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter two, he says, you know, uh, that God has uh, raised you up and seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. So we've already been somehow raised with Christ. We've already been seated with Christ. And so somehow Paul is thinking about us in terms of we are walking on the earth, but we also are already seated with Christ. We've already been raised up. Ultimately, the Lord's going to come and he's going to change everything one day. But in the meantime, the kingdom, the reality of heaven is actually meant to break into the earth through us. We're actually meant to be those who are walking with a heavenly perspective and are manifesting heavenly realities rather than just being locked into what's going on on the earth. And so I think that even though we are probably more aware of uh, the gravity of what's happening in the nations right now, we should also be the most hopeful people on the planet, the most joyful people on the planet. You know, we have a perspective that the king is coming again. And whenever he comes, he's going to make all things right. And from now until then, he's actually looking for a people that he can dwell in, that he can manifest his will through in this age. So we have every reason to be hopeful. You know, if you've read the end of the book, I mean, the first book of the Bible I ever read was the book of Revelation. I was saved about three days. I went to Denny's and I sat there for about four hours and read the book of Revelation. And I thought, I don't think I will ever understand the Bible. You know, what is this? But 20 years later, I'm still reading the book of Revelation. And even though right around chapter 17, 18, 19, it gets real intense, right around chapter 20 and 21 and 22, it gets really, really good that ultimately heaven's coming to earth. You know, Jesus is king and he's going to set up his throne and he's going to reign forevermore. So we have reason to hope in this age and in the age to come. Um, I actually feel like we are in Joshua chapter 3 right now. Joshua 3, 4, and 5 is, a, uh, I think, a really powerful picture of where the earth is at, especially where the body of Christ is at. Uh, and obviously, it's, it's too much to read, so I'm just going to reference it, but I would encourage you to read those three chapters this coming week. But in Joshua uh, 3... The Lord comes to Joshua and he tells him, I'm about to lead you across the Jordan River into the promised land. You're about to possess your inheritance. But in order to get there, you've got to cross over the Jordan River. And we know that the Jordan is, uh, it signifies death. The Jordan River empties into the Dead Sea. The Jordan is where uh, John baptized, which is a symbol of you know, being buried with him in baptism and resurrected in the newness of life. So the Jordan is symbolic of death in Scripture. That's one way that you can interpret it. And so he tells them, we're going to cross over the Jordan. We're going to inherit the promised land. 
But he says, uh, in, like, in like verse three or so of chapter three, he says, no, chapter three, verse four, he says, you've never been this way before. And that's where we're at. You've never been this way before. You know, we're gonna inherit the promised land. We're gonna cross over. We're gonna take the land. But you've never been this way before. Therefore, follow the ark. That's how you're going to make it across the Jordan. That's how you're going to go in. You've got to follow behind the ark. It says, be sure that you stay back and let the ark lead because you've never been this way before. And I think that's the whole thing about the Feast of Tabernacles is we're tent dwellers, right? We want to follow the ark. We want to follow the presence. We want to let the Lord lead because we've never been this way before. You know, I've been asking people, you know, I... um, for some reason, I have really close friends that are in their 70s, then I have really close friends that are in their 20s, uh, and even my friends that are in their 70s, I've asked them, have you ever seen days like these in your whole life? And unanimously, every one of them has said no. You know, pandemic, and uh, I mean, even those who you know, were alive through the Great Depression, it wasn't quite like this. I'm sure it was more intense in some ways, but, you know, the world is a lot smaller than it was during World War II and the Great Depression. You know, global events kind of happen all at once and to everybody at the same time now. So we've never been this way before. How are we going to make it? We're, we've got to follow close behind the ark. We've got to let the Lord lead. We've got to stay close to his presence because he knows exactly where he's headed. He knows the way in to possess the promised land. He knows the way over the Jordan River. And we see the story that the Lord comes to them in um, verse uh, 5. And the Lord comes to Joshua and he says, Tell the people to consecrate themselves because tomorrow I'm going to do wonders in your midst. Tell the people to consecrate themselves because tomorrow I'm going to do wonders in your midst. That's how the Lord prepared them for what he was about to do. When he crossed them over death to inherit the promised land, he says, consecrate yourselves because tomorrow I want to do wonders. And so that's what they did. They consecrated themselves and they got ready for the Lord to move. Uh, And the whole story for the next couple chapters is profound. Uh, whenever, Whenever the priesthood steps into the Jordan River... They're carrying the ark, so it's, it's a picture of, I think, the new covenant priesthood, our calling to carry the very manifest presence of God with us. It's those who are walking. Paul said, do you not know that you are the temple of God? You know, those who are walking with the Lord. You know, Jesus said, it's better that I go away so that the Holy Spirit can come. God's going to come dwell in you now. Well, I think the priest carrying the ark across the Jordan is a picture of you know, our calling to, to be that new covenant priesthood and carry the presence of the Lord. So whenever the priests step into the river, it says that the waters of the Jordan River, uh, they were cut off right where the priesthood stepped in. So the water stopped flowing in this direction. And then in the other direction, it says that the waters rolled back all the way to a town called Adam, which is so profound uh, and Rick Joyner's taught this for years, but I stole most of my stuff from somebody, so I'm, I'm comfortable with that. But 
Uh, you know, it rolls all the way back to Adam. So it's a picture of death. And again, I'm saying I think we're in days like these because Joshua 3, it might even be Joshua 4, it, I think it's in Joshua 3, it says, the Jordan River overflows its banks all the days of the harvest. So it's a picture of death. The closer we get to the time of harvest, Matthew 13, Jesus said, the harvest is the end of the age. You know, there is a great outpouring of the Spirit at the end of the age. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a move of God like the earth has never seen before because the Lord wants to save as many as possible, you know, before the kingdom fully comes. So there's a great harvest, which is really, really good news. The bad news is the Jordan River overflows its banks all the days of the harvest. In other words, there is a manifestation of death that's happening at the same time that harvest is happening in the earth. And so what's the solution? The solution is a priesthood who carries the ark and who steps into the midst of the Jordan. They step into the midst of the ark and the Jordan or death is rolled back all the way to Adam. When did death enter into humanity? It entered in with Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Death entered in. Their perfect fellowship with God was broken. Their fellowship with all of creation was broken. And so the curse of death entered in with Adam. But this is a prophetic picture of, I think, what we're called to walk in these days that, you know, there will be a generation who never sees death. There will be a generation who is here when the Lord comes and they're caught up in the air to meet him and they'll never taste death. But I believe there will be a generation who walks in authority over death even before the Lord comes. Everything that Jesus prophesied will come to pass. And one thing that he prophesied in John 14, 12 is the works that I do, which includes raising the dead and, you know, I mean, he did some pretty wild things, multiplying food, opening blind eyes, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see. He could kind of disappear in the midst of a crowd that was about to capture him and either make him king by force or throw him off a cliff, depending on what day of the week it was. And he said that those who believe in me will do the works that I did and even greater works. And that's what this is a picture of. It's that priesthood who steps in and rolls back the river Jordan, rolls back death all the way to Adam. So I think it's an extreme way to think about it, but I mean, what if you, got, what if you walked in this to such a degree, you so carried the presence of the Lord that whenever you walked by the rose bush, the thorns fell off because you're so fully carrying the redemptive presence of God that there's just little touches and tastes showing up in the present age of the age to come, what's going to happen when the Lord comes. But it's interesting that the way the Lord prepared them for the wonders that he wanted to do is he said, consecrate yourselves because tomorrow I want to do wonders in your midst. And I think that uh, the primary thing, and, and this is a big sweeping statement, but I, I think it applies to the majority of believers right now, the primary thing that the Lord is speaking to his people right now is consecrate yourself because I want to do wonders. And my whole understanding of that has changed a lot recently. Um, I've always considered, you know, uh, I think that 
somewhere along the line, I think I've gotten a healthier perspective on this, but for years, I considered consecration, just to be honest, to be the measure by which I condemned myself. You know, to look at consecration is perfection. And so when I consider, you know, consecrate yourselves because tomorrow I want to do wonders, that means that I evaluate myself by the standard of perfection and however many demerits I've got against my perfection, that's how long I've got to go before I'm consecrated. It's not the healthiest perspective. It's not a new covenant perspective on consecration. But actually, to consecrate means to set apart. It means to set apart. And the most consecrated people on the face of the earth are those who are setting themselves apart for the Lord. Those who are setting their lives apart. They're setting time apart. You know, in the mornings, whenever we begin our day by getting alone with God and spending time with Him and getting in the Word and saying, God, more than anything else, I want you to do what you want to do today. I want your presence today. I want to hear your voice today. I want to be close to you today. I want to walk with you today. I want to set myself apart for your purposes today. I think that's new covenant consecration. And in that process, the Lord deals with our stuff. I mean, we never compromise the standard of perfection. You know, we always strive to live up to the new covenant standard, which is actually higher than the old covenant standard, you know. I mean, the New Testament gets all up in your business a lot more than the Old Testament does. So we never compromise the standard, but day by day, we consecrate ourselves by spending time with the Lord, by getting alone with Him, by getting closer to Him, by learning His voice and discerning His presence. And the more that we are consecrated to Him, the more that we're set apart unto Him, the more that we're developing a friendship with Him, where he says, you're mine and I'm yours. And he entrusts more and more of himself to us. And we carry more and more of his presence. And there's more and more supernatural activity that starts to happen in our lives. And there's more authority when we pray. And there's more power when we prophesy. And stuff begins to happen when we lay hands on the sick. There's something about living the kind of a lifestyle where as a primary priority, we want to be set apart for the Lord. We say, God, I want to be fully yours and I want you to be fully mine. And I heard somebody make a statement recently and they said something like, every attack of the devil against your life and every distraction against your life is for the purpose of getting you out of the secret place, something like that. It's for the purpose of cutting off your communion with God. And I think that's really true. The main priority of the enemy, you know, if you still go to church, but you no longer have a living relationship with God, then you've essentially been neutered or neutralized as any kind of an impact. And so if he can come against your consecration, if he can distract you with a hundred other things or if he can attack you and get you off track where you're no longer actually growing closer to the Lord, then essentially it's like we're unplugged from the power source. You know, there's, there's no supernatural communion with a living God that's going to overflow in our lives. 
And I actually, and I've seen it in my own life for years, you know, the main strategy of the enemy, it's pretty much the rest of my life he's not that concerned about. But if he can get at my walk with the Lord, then he'll just about let you have anything else. You know, as long as you don't actually know God, as long as you don't actually walk with him and actually have a friendship with him, and so I think that this is actually true, that the Lord is after a consecrated people who actually know him and spend time with him and are learning to hear his voice and carrying his, his presence. Uh, last year in 2019, uh, a friend and I decided that you know, we were going to shoot for 100%. We probably hit about 80% that we were going to pray in tongues together every morning. And uh, he's in Texas. I'm here and so we would pray over the phone. We didn't commute, you know, every morning. But uh, so we'd call each other. I'd call him at seven or he'd call me at six because he's an hour behind. So he was more, more consecrated than I was at six than I was at seven. And so we would start the day off by praying in tongues. And, and it was awesome. I mean, there was this whole new fire that began to be stirred up in both of us. Uh, there was, a, you know, all kinds of fruit. I was challenging our church back in Fort Mill very regularly to pray in tongues. And I had our students praying in tongues. I, I gave our, um, I gave our uh, second year students an assignment uh, to pray in tongues for four hours. I said, here's the assignment. Either four hours in one sitting or four individual hours in one week, but pray in tongues uh, for four hours in the next week. And most of them did it together. And the testimonies that came out of it were ridiculous. I mean, uh, one of them, there was, there was a group of them praying together. And towards the end, they, brought, they uh, prayed for a girl who was having surgery the next day to have a cyst removed, uh, like something in her reproductive organs. They pray for her, the girl goes in, gets the sonogram or whatever before the surgery and they can't find the cyst anymore because, you know, the students laid hands on her after praying for four hours. Um, the, uh, another one of them, they, I had them all write out their testimony. Another one of them, there was a, a kid who, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, he's 20 or something, a young man who uh, wrote that, Ever since he had moved in, he uh, moved into the school, he had really struggled uh, with lust temptation. And he said, after this four hours in tongues, he said something broke in the atmosphere of his room, and he said he had been delivered of that thing ever since that day. And last year, in our first year ministry school class, somewhat of a you know, I don't know how you define these things, but some kind of a move of God broke out. I don't know if you call it a revival, but something happened that regularly the students would never get out of worship in the morning. So chapel, instead of being a half hour before three hours of class, would go for three and a half or four hours because they could never get out of worship and prayer. Uh, or it would go even longer than that. But something started happening where the students got so stirred and so fired up that they would rather commune with God and prophesy and worship, then, you know, move on to the rest of their day. And the second year students who prayed in tongues four hours, 
took credit for the revival breaking out in the first year students class. They said it's because what we stirred up in the spirit by praying in tongues so much. I even gave this assignment to our, uh, our we have a K through 12 school and to our seniors, I gave them an assignment to pray 45 minutes in tongues. I didn't go four hours with them. I was taking it easy. But 45 minutes in tongues and then write about it and tell me what happened. Well, one thing that happened, I don't even know, you know, I guess in the Lord's ethic, this all works out. But uh, there was a test. And this, one of the teachers told me this. There was a test that none of the students were really prepared for, although they should have been. They didn't do their homework, didn't study, whatever. And so they were all, the students were kind of freaking out. And she said, I'll tell you what, you remember what Pastor Justin said in here just the other day, you guys take the next 10 minutes and pray in tongues before the test. Every one of them passed and 85% of them, I think it was all but two of them made an A on this test that they didn't even study for and they didn't even do their homework. I'm thinking like, man, we can make some serious inroads into public schools with this, like lay hands on kids to get filled with the Spirit and pray in tongues. But it was really, it was an awesome year. And even personally, just I felt like I, you know, something woke up in me that, that had gone to sleep last year as we did this for a year, prayed in tongues. And uh, it's interesting because uh, my friend Todd, uh, his favorite uh, Bible verse is his birthday, his birth date verse in Isaiah. I know prophetic people do weird things like this, but Isaiah 62, 6, because his birthday is June 26, so 626. My favorite Bible verse, one of my absolute favorite, is, is Isaiah 62, 4. My birthday is 624, June 24th. And uh, my birthday verse says, no longer will you be called forsaken. No longer will you be called desolate, but you will be called Beulah. The Lord will call you Hephzibah because the Lord delights in you and the Lord will be married to you. And so it's this beautiful promise about how the Lord is committed to us. And then the very next verse says, and just like the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. And so it's this incredible promise that the Lord wants us to understand. He's committed to us like that, and he rejoices over us like that. The Lord rejoices over us. You know, he calls us the one that he's married to. And so it's like a really you know, intimacy with God verse. Well, his, he's, he's one of Lou Engle's spiritual sons. He was one of the, the original group of 12 that stood in front of the uh, Supreme Court with the life tape on their mouth. Uh, he was in the Justice House of Prayer when it started up in D.C. So he was, you know, one of those fiery, like prophetic intercessor Nazarite guys. And his favorite verse, Isaiah 62, 6, two verses after. It's right after the Lord says, I'm married to you, I rejoice over you like a bridegroom rejoices over a bride. Isaiah 62, 6 says, I will set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem, and they will not hold their peace. They will not keep silent until the will of God for you is fulfilled, basically. You know, until you become beautiful and you become everything you're called to be. And so, I think there's something there, and I, and I had heard somebody mention this before, but it became very real last year as he and I were praying together, and we would often talk about this reality. 
that in order for us to effectively be Isaiah 62, 6 and 7 watchmen, those who are seated as watchmen over our nation, over our neighborhood, over our family, over our business, over our church, prophetic people, you know, because again, we're in that tabernacle's time where we want to be sensitive to the voice of God. In order for us to effectively be watchmen, the, the kind that are so in tune to what's happening that we lay hold of the promise of God over our family or over our nation. And as watchmen, we will not hold our peace. We will not be silent. We will continually make mention to the Lord until he does what he said we will do. In order to embody that and be that kind of a watchman, you actually first have to get the revelation of Isaiah 62, 4 and 5. You first have to understand that the Lord doesn't call us to be watchmen or watchwomen because he needs someone to work for him and get the job done. He calls us first as confidants, as those that he says, I'm rejoicing over you like a bridegroom rejoices over a bride. I call you the one I delight in. I call you the one that I'm married to. Once we get that, and once we actually can rest in that and have peace in that, in that place of communion with the Lord, that place of intimacy with the Lord, he can show us anything he wants to as a watchman. And he can give us that promise or that prophetic seed that you know, prayer arrow, whatever it is, that prophecy that we're gonna lay hold of like a bulldog and not let it go until we see the Lord do what he said he would do. But that kind of a prophetic watchman thing comes out of first a real intimate place with the Lord. So it's that consecration thing again, you know, consecrate yourself. And I really am kind of like an intimacy with God guy I mean, that's what my main kind of focus is. I, I love the gospel. I, um, I love to preach the gospel. I was asking my wife on the way over here, I was ribbing her about her favorite preacher who isn't me. And I said something like, you know, name your top five. She's not in here right now. I'd still say it if she was. I said something like, name your top five messages that I've ever preached. And she kind of chuckled and I'm like, no, really. And I said, name your top five Messages that, I'll tell you who it is, it's Stephen Furtick. I like Stephen Furtick's preaching too, but, uh, and she said, um, you know, she's like, oh, I really could, and she didn't, of course, but she said, no, seriously, my favorite message that you preach is when you preach the gospel, and I love to preach the cross. I love to preach the gospel. I mean, I believe that Christians need the gospel as much as lost people. I believe mature believers who have known the Lord for 40 years need to hear the gospel all over again. You know, Paul wrote to Rome in Romans chapter one. Rome was probably one of, it was the strongest Gentile church, well-established. And he says to them, I can't wait to come and preach the gospel to you. He said to the Corinthians, you know, whenever I was with you, I knew nothing except Christ and him crucified. I think that we need the gospel our whole lives. And so I love the gospel. I love intimacy with God. I love the good news. But the reality is that we do need to live in light of those things, but we also need to be awakened watchmen who realize that we're in war right now. You know, we're in a time of war. 
the destiny of our nation, the destiny of many nations, the destiny, I think, of you know, the plan of God on the face of the earth is being waged war against with everything that hell's got right now. Daniel chapter seven says that the spirit of Antichrist, three of his agendas are to wear out the saints, to change the times, and to change the laws. That that's the agenda of the spirit of Antichrist. Wear out the saints, change the times, and change the laws. And I believe that that's, that's what we're in the throes of right now. It's the Antichrist spirit trying to wear out the saints you know, through all kinds of ways, but there are ways that that will happen that it hasn't happened yet. And to change the times, I don't believe it's time for the Great Tribulation yet. I don't believe it's time for America to be destroyed. None of that. It's time for the Great Harvest. You know, it's time for God to pour out His Spirit on the face of the earth. But just like I think Adolf Hitler had vision to probably be the Antichrist. If you look at his agenda, he was well on his way to fulfilling what was prophesied about the man of sin, you know, who would establish a one world order and one world currency and exterminate the Jews, all that. And those who were his close confidants talked about the deep occult that he was in. You know, he was deep into witchcraft and that kind of thing. The spirit of Antichrist seeks to change the times and change the laws. And I believe that was a desire of the evil one even then to bring forth the tribulation before the great harvest for one. But I think that much of what is being warred over in the nations right now is to change the times. It's to subvert the will of God to redeem and instead to bring forth the destructive will of Satan in nations. But the good news is that even though we are in a time of war, oh, and to change the laws, it's not only to change the times, it's also to change the laws. I mean, maybe it's this way in every generation, and maybe, you know, I I was spiritually asleep before I got saved. I was also young before I got saved. But uh, since I've been spiritually awakened, it seems like the battle is raging more than ever for laws to be changed, you know, for our nation's laws to be changed, for an evil agenda to establish laws for wickedness to reign in the land. And so that's the Antichrist agenda. But the good news is, you know, God is raising up warriors. You know, um, the, the last time I was here, I won't ask because I'm sure all of you remember and could tell me what I preached on last time I was here. Because last time I was here, I talked about the Zadok priesthood, I'm pretty sure anyway, because I found some notes that said Wilmington with that message. But you guys know the sons of Zadok were the priests during the time of Ezekiel who were most intimate with God. The Lord speaks to Ezekiel and he says, the priests of Israel have gone astray and they, you know, have run after other gods, et cetera, et cetera. They have lost their privilege to minister to me. This is what God tells Ezekiel. The priest of Israel can no longer minister to me personally. But, he says, the, the priests of the sons of Zadok, 
they can come near to me and they will minister to me. They will approach my table and they will minister to me. So the sons of Zadok are the ones that are called to minister to the Lord personally. Think about that. You know, I think we kind of weigh the significance of someone's calling in the scales of the importance of those that they minister to. If someone's called to minister to Trump and the presidents of nations and kings and other lands, we think, wow, what a weighty calling. Well, think about every believer has an invitation to minister to the King of Kings, the Lord of the universe. We have an open invitation to enter behind the veil by the new and living way into the very throne room. You know, come boldly before the throne of grace. So the sons of Zadok are the ones who are called to the deepest intimacy and it's the sons of Zadok. So this morning I was reading about now if the sons of Zadok are the ones who are most intimate with God, who was Zadok that, that qualified his sons to get to be the ones who ministered to God himself? Which I do believe is a new covenant invitation to every believer because of the new and living way that Jesus has made. But back then it wasn't. It was a select few, the sons of Zadok, that got to get that close to the Lord. Zadok, according to 1 Chronicles, it says that he was a warrior and a valiant man. He was a warrior and a valiant man. As a matter of fact, in the times of Absalom, whenever, um, you know, most of Israel was forsaking David, Zadok risked his life to go in with soldiers as a valiant man, a warrior. He risked his life to go in and take the ark of God and bring it to be with David. And he was a valiant man. He was a warrior. That's literally what it said about him. Uh, I just read it this morning. So we're kind of talking about both intimacy with God and warfare. I prefer the former, but we're in the latter, and hopefully we're walking it out as we walk in intimacy with the Lord. But the sons of Zadok, the ones who have the greatest invitation to minister to the Lord and walk in intimacy with Him, are the offspring of the great warriors in David's generation. As a matter of fact, uh, David... Uh, right whenever he becomes king, he is listing off, it's the same section where it talks about Zadok. I think it's like 1 Chronicles 12 or somewhere in there. Um, I might come across it here in my notes, but um, it's listing off all the, the groups of people that came to David whenever uh, Saul was first killed. And it talks about, you know, this group of, of men, the sons of this people, and they had, you know, a skillful warriors with spears in their company. And then this other group that had, you know, fearless men with faces like lions, you know, and it lists off all these groups of people. And then it talks about the sons of Issachar. And it says the sons of Issachar, they were the ones who understood the times and they knew what Israel was to do. And they were listed among Israel's military, among David's military groupings. I should, I'll, if anybody wants to know the reference, I can uh, tell you whenever I'm, whenever I'm done here because it'll take me too long to find it. But So the sons of Issachar, they were the ones who understood the times 
and they knew what to do. I mean, what clearer picture of what prophetic people are called to be. We don't just want to have understanding and be able to, you know, sit in our prayer closet and be wowed at our revelation, you know, but we want to know what to do. We want to know, Lord, what's the answer? You know, if we're in times of war, what are we to do right now? You know, what are we, how are we called to respond in days like these? What are we called to do about it? Um, I, I posted a video last week that uh, was just sort of, or a couple weeks ago, I posted a video that, uh, that went through the plan of Marxists to take over America. Have you guys seen this? 45 goals of uh, the Marxists to take over America, and like 40 of them have already been completed. And I lined out how almost every one of the Marxist goals to destroy America line up with specific statements about the spirit of Antichrist in Scripture. Things like promoting the gay agenda. That's one of the explicit goals of Marxists to destroy America uh, is you undermine the family. You try to take children away from their parents because the influence on their parents is stronger than the influence of the community. So you want to get them away from their parents. Uh, You want to... um, cause as many nations as possible to align together, which, you know, that's totally what the spirit of Antichrist does. In Revelation 13 and uh, Daniel, you know, really from seven on to the end of the book, there's this sort of many nations coming together in like a one world system, right? And so uh, what we're dealing with, with a lot of sort of the communist or Marxist stuff that is getting more and more prominent It's actually the spirit of Antichrist, just plain and simple. It's nothing new. It's existed for at least a couple thousand years. Um, I I watched a a video uh, just in the last week or two. This guy was a uh, former satanic priest, and he was talking about, and now he's radically saved. He was being interviewed on a Christian talk show And he talked about how uh, one of their strategies, and this is still true today, is that anytime blood was spilled, if they could go to the place where blood was spilled, they could transfer a principality into that region because of the power of the blood that was spilled. But he said the praying church could mess their plans up. And uh, that's something else I could give, I could tell you where I found that if you wanted to watch it, but... He specifically said that um, anytime they could bring division between races over the spilling of blood, then that's what they would do. They, the, these satanic rituals would bring some kind of a spirit of division into a region to try and stir up violence and more bloodshed. You guys remember uh, whenever Israel was at war with Moab and Misha, the king of Moab, sacrificed his own son to a demon. And it says great wrath was released against Israel, even though the man was sacrificing. I mean, think of the cost, the sacrifice, the the cost of that blood that was spilled. It released a great demonic onslaught. Well, these same tactics are being used like right now in our nation. You know, a demonic onslaught that is for the purpose of division 
It's for the purpose of establishing demonic strongholds. And this is the kind of war that we're in. We're in a time of warfare. We're in a time that we need to understand the times and know what to do. I'm almost done. Um, I, I just read this book uh, called Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. Has anybody read that by chance? I think it just came out, but um, it's about in World War II, uh, at war with the Nazis, there was this small band of uh, scientists and engineers and weapons manufacturers and uh, spies and guys. Who, the, the guy that uh, James Bond was made after was a part of this group. And it later, it actually became the foundation of our current CIA, this little group that started out as, it was called Baker Street. And um, so anyway, this, this band of, of just a handful of highly creative, highly specialized warriors probably did more to unravel the Nazi strategy to overcome the world, possibly, than any other army. And, uh, and they almost didn't get credit for it. England wanted their memory erased from the history books because they engaged in ungentlemanly warfare. They engaged in sabotage. You know, they used very creative measures to take out, like for instance, there was, a, uh, there was only one uh, factory in, in all of the occupied part of, of the Nazis' regime. There was only one factory that could produce heavy water. And heavy water is essential for creating plutonium, if I understand it correctly, to make a nuclear bomb. And so this little band was parachuted behind enemy lines, and they infiltrated this community, and they made friends with the community, and they raised up a little band of guerrillas to those who worked in the factory to sabotage the factory. And they blew the whole thing up. And then they ended up blowing up like almost all the factories in the town. Even the owner of uh, Pujo, the car manufacturer, I might be not saying it right. But they even let this little band blow up their factory because the Nazis were using it to make tanks. And, uh, you know, they lost, you know, the equivalent of hundreds of millions of dollars allowing this little band to blow up their factory. Another thing this little band did was they snuck in uh, before the uh, invasion, before um, D-Day, the Normandy invasion, this band discovered that Hitler was going to be moving his, the majority of his tanks all the way across France in order to be there for the Normandy invasion. And so all they had to do was they snuck into a train yard at night and they filled the bearings of the train cars with this abrasive grease so that once the train started rolling that had Hitler's entire arsenal of tanks, the grease ate the bearings and the ax axles of the train cars and they were immovable for 17 days. They didn't make it in time for the Normandy invasion. They did so many things like this. This little band was parachuted into Norway in, you know, way below freezing temperatures where they said you would die in a half hour if you weren't prepared. And 
They got parachute, parachuted in and, you know, in the middle of this frozen, like, Arctic wasteland, no idea where they were. This storm blew them way off course, and they just happened to find this little shack where they could build a fire enough to keep them alive. And over the course of several months, uh, they met up with a local resistance who was also living, you know, in this tundra, whatever, frozen wilderness and they were able to mobilize a handful of guerrillas to go in and blow up uh, this, um, this power plant that was basically supplying power to all of Hitler's operations in Norway. And the way that they did it was for months, they had to live in a frozen wasteland, you know, minutes away from death. They had to kill caribou to, to survive and they got in, they blew up the factory, no casualties. You know, nobody died on their side, nobody, no Norwegians died. My point is that they were highly creative. They completely thought outside the box. They had to adapt to the warfare of their generation because had they used the tactics of the previous generation, then there's no way they would have won against Hitler. Hitler was fairly outside the box, and he had a lot of you know, thinkers on his team, but it was required that a different kind of warfare was utilized in order to meet the threat of a different kind of enemy. The same thing is true in the Revolutionary War. You know, they used to line up. I can't imagine that this was ever the way that they did war, but both armies would line up 50 feet in front of each other and point guns at each other and shoot each other in a line. And, you know, the slaughter, of course, was unbelievable. But whenever patriots decided to start doing warfare like Native Americans, and they started, if you guys have ever seen the movie The Patriot, you know, they do a good job of showing that, they were able to turn the tides of the war. So I believe in our generation... We're in a kind of warfare that we've never been in before, and the Lord is looking for highly creative strategies and highly prophetic people who can be watchmen on the wall who are going to hear the word of the Lord in order to walk out the strategy of God in our generation. We've never been this way before. We've got to follow close behind the ark. You know, I uh, challenged our... because. Our church was shut down for a couple months because of COVID, and then a lot of our ministries were shut down for a while after that. And uh, I challenged all of them before we came back, let's come back different. Rick challenged the whole, Rick Joyner challenged our whole church, like, whenever we start bringing everything back online, let's, let's come back, let's think out of the box. Let's not come back to do business as usual, because how many of us have realized that things are not getting back to normal, per se. There's a new normal, right? The world has changed dramatically, like it changed after 9-11, like it changed after the Great Depression, like it changed after World War II. We're in a different world than we've ever been before. And we want to be prophetic people who are, you know, on the cutting edge, not because we want to be cool, but because we want to hear the voice of the Lord and we want to be one step or 30 steps ahead of the enemy you know, walking out God's strategy in our generation. So anyway, I challenge the ministries of our church, let's come back 
Let's, let's get creative. You know, maybe we can't do everything the way we used to, so how can we do it different? So the way that our healing team ministers, it's completely different than it's ever been before. You know, it's way, there's way more opportunity for God to do something supernatural than there ever has been before. We, we start out with word of knowledge before we ever even ask people, what can we pray for? Uh, our prophetic ministry, we used to be able to minister to, you know, about 300 people in a, a whole conference. We developed a whole new strategy for our prophetic team so that we ministered to 400 people in two and a half hours. And so we're just thinking outside the box. How can we do this like we've never done it before? This today is the first day that our children's ministry has been back since March because we just weren't sure, you know, how do we do this? You know, kids don't social distance. It's just not going to happen. You know, so how can we do it in a way that's safe? How can we do it in a way that is going to facilitate the greatest amount of ministry? And the plan that we came up with, I think it's better than anything that we've ever done before, but it's completely different, completely outside the box. And so I think that, you know, that's our challenge right now. Um, In times of change like this, there are those who are able to adapt to the times and actually thrive in days like these. And then there are those who are so used to the way that it's always been who don't actually make the shift and who can become irrelevant in a shift like this. You know, historically, billionaires were made in great times of change. You know, Great Depression included, world wars, all, you know, new technologies, all of that. And so, we, you know, we want, as the church... You know, what is the church going to look like a year from now, five years ago, from now, 10 years from now? We did this meeting on Friday night, which was very much, you know, everybody brings something, you know, let worship go long, let people prophesy to each other. And it was much more engaging than a normal church service because everybody got to bring something to the table. It's not that it always has to be like that, but... You know, I I emailed our staff this morning and I said, let's do, we're going to do one of our services like that, you know, just a normal Sunday service. It's been a while since we've done that. So the good news is, yes, we're in times of war, but the good news is we are a prophetic people. And just as whenever I was on the beach, it's so easy to get locked into what's happening in front of our natural eyes, but it's so much more inspiring to look up. You know, if then you've been raised with Christ, if you've been seated with heaven in heavenly places, if you, you know, are able to walk with the Lord, then we need to be looking up. We need to be saying, Lord, what do you want to do? Well, I didn't get through uh, anywhere you know, near what I necessarily wanted to, but I kind of feel like I'm done. And uh, I think we're going to pray for some people and however you want to flow from here. But um, yeah, let me just pray for you before we shift over into, uh, into ministry. Father, we thank you, God, that you have called us to be a prophetic people. Lord, that we are people of the cloud. Lord, that we are tent dwellers who are chasing after you. God, if you up and move, we want to up and move with you. I pray, God, that you would sensitize each one of us to your voice. Lord, that you would sensitize us to the moving of your spirit. 
God, that we would be like a feather in the wind of your presence, that the slightest breeze would move us, God, that we would be sensitive to the still small voice, God, that we would hear your voice in the wind, in the fire, in the rain. God, I pray for creative ideas. Lord, I know right here in this room there are prophetic people. God, there are people who who were born to hear your voice, who were born to get downloads from heaven that will be the strategy of God for this generation. And I ask you, Lord, for uh, divine ideas and strategies, Lord, revelation. I pray for business ideas, for ministry and evangelism ideas. I pray, God, that you would uh, give us insight into heaven's agenda for Wilmington, heaven's agenda for our nation, God, that you would give dreams and visions, give us understanding of what you want to do in our time. In Jesus' name, amen.